Patris and Philia, spinach and Socrates. O Master, who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your Father and your all holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Would anybody like a copy of that prayer? I'd be happy to copy it off next time. We went kind of fast last time, and there's some new faces, so we have to do a little quick review. And um, I apologize to those that weren't with us last time, and uh, I'd be happy to stay a little bit afterwards to talk with you if you have any questions. But let's just do a real quick review. You guys help me, and then we're off to the races because we last time we took our time. This time we got to go really fast. So um, we talked about. Juan, would you mind just, um, well, whatever. If more people come, we'll just make it sound like Okay. Uh, we're talking about the seven days of creation and how the number seven uh, denotes for, he, for the Hebrew people, for the Israelites, uh, the covenant or an oath. And so the two things are interchangeable. Sometimes you'll see the number seven used as a symbol of the oath or the covenant. And so why does God create within a seven-day pattern? And uh, well, as we talked last time, in order to, to explain to us that he desires to have a covenant relationship with his people. Okay, That Yahweh is not the God of... He's, he's not uh, Allah. Okay, for Islam, God is very much a separated God, not involved in the day-to-day activities of his people. Okay, not sharing his life with them. Okay, they don't have a, a, a Christian understanding of grace as we do. Okay, for the Jews and for us, God desires a real relationship with his people. He desires to divinize us. That's what the church has always taught. That's what the Jews believe. That's what the scriptures teach. He desires to share his life with us, to make us like him. Okay, that's why in the beginning he planned to feed us with the tree of life. That we could eat and live forever. We would have the life of God. And so he planted the tree of life and tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. If he ate from the tree of life, what would happen? He was and if he ate from the tree of knowledge, he would die. And so that basic ble- covenant blessing and curse is placed right there in the beginning of Genesis where God puts before man a choice. And he can choose life in union with God or he can choose separation from God. And when you choose separation from God, you choose separation from your source of life and therefore you choose death. God does not condemn anyone to hell. We choose hell by separating our so- ourselves from the source of life. Okay? Um, and so man uh, ate from the tree of knowledge, received the curse of death, and he looked at himself and found himself naked and ashamed. And I talked to you about what the church fathers had seen in that. And what was that? Help me. Please. <laughs> what was that? The church father saw in Adam's nakedness a casting off of what? 
Oh, it's glory. Great. <laughs> yeah, the grace or the glory robe or whatever you want to call it. The robe of glory, the whatever section. Um, I just have a couple more chairs. Sorry, someone else comes in. Um, so in the beginning, before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked in the sense of the clothes that we wear today, but they had something that they then lost, and that was namely that robe of grace or that sonship which they had. Um, and so Adam found himself ashamed of his state that he was in, no longer a reflection of God, but now a reflection of the animals. And so God put upon him the skin of animals. Now he literally looked like the animals because that's how he acted. Okay, um, And immediately God said, you know, says uh, his plan would not be thwarted. And so we have the text in Genesis 3.15 of the Proto-Evangelium, which says that God eventually would bring about man's salvation through the workings of a woman. Okay, um, And so right there in the beginning, God tells us of the battle of salvation history, a battle which would take place between God and the devil, between man and the devil, and, and oftentimes between man and God, as man yoked himself to sin and death. And so all of salvation history, then, is going to be a story of that battle. As we saw last time, it gets kind of ugly sometimes. There's a lot of blood and gore and, and all sorts of illicit things taking place. Okay, It's a painful uh, purging, if you will. And so salvation history will be that story of the battle, and it will be the story of mankind coming back to its relationship with God. Okay, that's the true story that we're supposed to be reading through the text of watching mankind come back to his relationship with God and therefore come back to paradise. Because God made a home for us in the beginning and God's plan does not change. He desires to live with us in paradise where we will eat from the tree of life and live forever. To partake in God's own life and God will be our father and we will be his children. We talked about the significance of the name right after the casting out of Adam and Eve from the garden and the story of Cain and Abel. And what happens? Cain builds a city, right? He has a son and they build a city. And what do they do? After, yeah, after Cain's son, right? Trying to build up a name for themselves to make themselves glorious. Okay, and at the culmination of that line, that evil line, we saw what man? Do you remember? Lamech. Lamech. Right. And after seven generations, he is the ultimate in evil, or the, the fullness of evil. And again, on the other side, the seven generations on the line of covenant, who do we have? Enoch, right? Who walks with God and was not, for he was taken. Okay? Um, and so we followed that line, the covenant line of Adam and Eve through Abel, Seth, Enoch, Noah, Shem, and now we're right on to Abram. Okay? And we're going to co constantly watch as, the, as man chooses death instead of life. He chooses away from God and ends up separated from the covenant family. Okay, and so we saw that first with Cain and the whole line to Lamech, and ultimately they're wiped out of the flood. And with Noah, he has three sons. What are their names? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham ends up having a son named Canaan, right? We talked about that last time. And we end up with the whole, the, the, the line of the curse, 
Okay? And there's all sorts of bad men that come out of that line. One of them is Nimrod, who founds what, what empire? The Babylonians. Okay, Egypt comes from that line. You can probably go through that line and pick out all those names, and they keep reoccurring in the Pentateuch as they are constantly in battle with the people of God. Whenever you see Israel going to war with somebody, get out your concordance. How many of you know what a concordance is? Some of you do. Okay, good. If you don't, it's a book that has, it lists by word all the times that word appears. So you can look up Canaan, and it lists all the times the Bible Canaan appears. So when, when, you're, when you find someone in battle with Israel, go back and find out who the father of those people was. Because oftentimes it's a person who is part of that evil line, the line of the devil, if you will. Okay, And so we had with also that theme of the name that, remember, what does the name Shem mean? <laughs> name. Name. Okay, Shem means name. He's the one that receives the name or receives the blessing. Okay? And Canaan, in response to that, realizes that he's not going to receive the blessing. He's not going to be the one to sit upon the throne of the family. And so what does he do? He tries to usurp the throne. Okay? It's the same thing Adam and Eve did in the beginning. They sought to become powerful. They sought to live forever apart from God, apart from the one who is the source of life. They sought to become God apart from God. Just like Canaan is going to seek to become, and, and Ham is going to seek to become uh, the father of the family apart from the father of the family. He's going to seek to be powerful apart from the one who has the power. Does that make sense? Okay, um, so here we are in Genesis chapter 12. Open up there. Just before we get to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 11, verse uh, 27. If you can bring your Bible with you to a Bible study, come on, guys. <laughs> Carry your Bible everywhere with you. You never know when you're going to need it. Sorry, I only got one extra here. Um, Sheila, can you read that for us? Verse 27. Descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran was the father of Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldees. Hmm, where is that? Pull out your map. In the U.S. Well, I don't care about where it is. I don't know where it's at in your map. I underlined it for you. It's very small, towards the right, exactly, in the circle of Babylon. The circle of Babylon is before this little circle to the right on your map there. I underlined Ur. You see it? Yeah. If you don't have the map, there's more back there. Now, if you don't have the map, look on it with your friend next to you or whatever. I want you to hold on to that spot in your bio, your finger there, and just flip back a couple of pages with me to Genesis chapter 4, verse uh, 16. Chapter 4, verse 16. 
Of Genesis. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The presence of the Lord is Eden. And he went to dwell away from the presence of the Lord, east of Eden. Okay? There's another text we could look at. We're not going to do it right now. In the early chapters of Genesis, don't get it confused if those of us that spoke about the liturgy and facing east, ignore that right now, but the importance of facing east during the Mass. Okay? In the early chapters of Genesis, east becomes the direction of exile or of sin. Okay? They keep going further and further east. The curse keeps giving them, or keeps pushing them further and further east. You remember the cherub with the flaming sword was placed on the east of Eden, right, to guard the tree of life, separating man from the tree, which would have been west. Okay, does that make sense? And, and we meet a man who is called from Ur of the Chaldees, namely Abram, who becomes Abraham, and he is called back. You can flip back now to, to chapter 12, chapter 11 and 12. He is called from the land of, the, of Ur, near Babylon. Okay, a land of, that, that is for us a sign of sin and death. Okay? And he goes up to a place called Haran. You can follow that little arrow on your map. He goes up to dwell in Haran for a little bit. But eventually he goes to a certain land that God gives him. And what land is that? The land of Canaan. Okay? And he meets a certain man in that land. And who is that man? We haven't gotten into the story yet, but in chapter 14, he meets a certain priest. Yeah. I'll just put Mel up here. Melchizedek. He meets Melchizedek in the land of Canaan. Okay, now look. Abraham is being given a particular land of promise. And God tells him, I will dwell with you there. Look at your map. Finder of the Chaldees. And go directly west. In the opposite direction of exile. Directly west. And what city have I underlined for you that you basically hit straight on? Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in the heart of Canaan. Do you guys see that? Are you all with me? No. Okay. Find Ur of the Chaldees and go west. Ur of the Chaldees is right under the, in that circle of Babylon. I'm sorry the map is so bad. Okay. You guys with me? Alright. Pay attention. We're almost there. It's a hard point, but don't worry, we're going to get it. Okay, he is called out of exile, in a sense, back into covenant with God. And when, he's, when he does that, when God calls him, he calls him to a land directly in the opposite direction of what has been constant exile. So from paradise, from the Garden of Eden, Adam... And Eve were exiled, Cain, Abel, and the whole story is a constant exile. And suddenly we meet this great man, Abram, who is called, the father of faith, is called back. And he's given a land where the Canaanites dwell. And in the middle of that land is a strange man, Melchizedek. Okay. 
Melchizedek is the king of what? Salem. Salem. Peace. You see that in chapter 14? Look at chapter 14, verse 17. Verse 18. Verse 18. Chapter 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. Whoa. There's a holy man, a priest of God, dwelling in the middle of a sinful people. And he's a king. And he's a priest. Okay. Where is Salem? Jerusalem. Yeah. Jerusalem and Salem are the same place. We're not going to get into it. If you want to look it up, you can later on. Don't do it now. You can look up Genesis chapter 22, verse 14. You can look up Psalm 76, verse 2. Salem, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a later name for Salem. You can see. Jerusalem. Okay. Abraham is called to Jerusalem and he meets the king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is not the man's name. Melchizedek is a, is a throne name. Okay? Melech in Hebrew, it means what? King. King. And Zedek means her. And Zedek means what? You know? Righteous. He is a righteous king. He is a holy king. He is a king of God most high. Abraham goes to him and receives a blessing. Now, go back in the story in your memory just real quick. <coughs> Who else received a blessing just recently? In the story. Go back. I know this is doing how you do acrobats. Go back in the story real quick. Chapter 9. Who received a great blessing and someone received a great curse? Yeah. You remember. Blessed be Shem by the Lord my God. Okay? And so on. Noah gives his son Shem in chapter 9 the covenant blessing of the family. Edmund's looking at me going, he's never going to get through all of Genesis today. Okay? Noah gives his son Shem the covenant blessing of the family. It is the father's duty and the father's right to give his son the blessing. To pass on the blessing. We see that through Genesis all the time. You want to receive the, be the rightful heir to the throne of your father? You go and receive his blessing. It happens all the time in Genesis. It happened in chapter 9. And it happens again here in chapter 14. Why does it happen in chapter 14? Abraham is called out of exile. And he's called back to a land where the Canaanites are dwelling. Now refresh my memory. Abraham is a descendant of whom? Yeah, but he's a descendant of Sarah. But ultimately, the, the main man and the descendant of is Shem, the one who received the blessing. Okay? You guys with me? Alright. Now, the father of the family is the only one that can pass on the family <coughs> blessing. And Abraham is called out of exile to a place where a people dwell, the Canaanites. And you remember, the Canaanites are to be what? Servants. Yeah, slave of slaves to whom? Shem. To Shem. And here we have the Canaanites dwelling in a land 
owning a land, slaves don't own land, and they're surrounding a particular righteous king. The Jews believed, and the early Christians believed, that Melchizedek was none other than Shem. Melchizedek was Shem. Why do they say that? Because Abraham goes and receives the blessing to receive receives the covenant and all of the land around this king and the blessing that is given is the blessing of a father to his son. Okay? Furthermore, that land where Jerusalem is the center, the slave of slaves are camped and camped around this king. And instead of serving the king, they've encircled him. They've enclosed him. And we won't get into it, but the chapter just before chapter 14, where Abraham receives his blessing, there's a huge war going on in that area. And why is there a huge war going on in that area? It's simply because the king, the, the righteous king that should have been ruling the whole land, has all of his servants, the Canaanites, they're all in revolt. And God says to Abraham, go back and I will give you that land as what? As an inheritance. It's an inheritance because he is the rightful heir to the throne of Shem. And he is the rightful king of the Holy Land. On your little flyer, I put a little sentence, I don't know if you guys have read it, but I said, why did God command the killing of the Canaanites? Why? Because the Canaanites were usurping the throne, just like their father had tried to usurp the throne. They were dwelling in a land which was not theirs to dwell in. They were ruling and controlling a land which was not theirs to rule and control. So the story of Abraham is a story of the taking back of the covenant land of God. I go a little one step further. That center of Jerusalem, which is directly west of Ur of the Chaldees, was believed by the Jews to be none other than the Garden of Eden. Okay? Jerusalem and all of the Holy Land was believed by the Jews to be none other than the Garden of Eden. For this very point, that from all of self, or in the early chapters of Genesis, this constant exile to these, exile to these, and finally, God chooses a man and says, hey, come back to the land of covenant. I will give it to you as your inheritance. He goes in the exact opposite direction of where Cain had been sent and all of the evil men had been sent. And finally, he receives it as an inheritance. And God says to him, I will dwell there and walk among you. Okay? All right. I know that's kind of heavy duty. Did I lose you guys? Yeah? That is all of you guys? Yeah, go ahead. So you're saying the Jews think that, um, what do we currently think this land of that's, that's, a whole, that's a question for a Genesis Bible study. I'm not going to tell you get too much into it. The important thing for us to get hold of is what did the Jews believe? Because for us as Christians to read the New Testament, which is our goal, to read the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, we have to understand the perspective of the Jews at the time of Christ. And the perspective was that Jerusalem was to be paradise restored. Okay? It was the mountain of the garden of God. All right. Why is that important? 
It's important to know, first of all, who Melchizedek is and why Abraham receives that land. Because that land will become the place of salvation for all of the Old Testament. And to understand the stories of the Old Testament, we have to understand the perspective of the Jews that that is a place of salvation. And every time they sin, they will be thrown out of it just like Adam and Eve were thrown out of it. And every time they want to have covenant union with God and return to a right way of living, they will be called back to that place over and over again. The whole Old Testament. What happens? Adam and Eve are cast out. Abraham is called back in. Uh, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, so they're cast out. And they go to Egypt. Then they're called back in with Moses. They fall into sin again, and the Babylonians come and conquer them, and they're thrown out again. Then they come back. Okay? That's the story of the Old Testament. Just back and forth like that. If you follow it like that, the stories suddenly start to make sense. Okay? That was way too long on that point. And they return after 2,000 years. What? They return after 2,000 years. Who will return after 2,000 years? You mean in the future? No, now. Oh, yes. It's true. It just keeps going back and forth. But that's a whole other thing because, yeah, it doesn't really hold for today so much. Okay. Quickly. We're not, we don't even have to follow it through our Bible because we know the story so well that we're just... Remember I told you we're not going to rest in those stories we know. We're going to go... We're going to fly over those and we're going to go to those ones we don't so we can build the bridge in between. Okay, so who does Abraham marry? Sarah. Uh-huh. And what happens before? All right, yes, he marries Sarah, and God says, I'm going to make a nation of you. You're going to have, a, you're going to have children, right? And what happens? She's barren. She's barren, and so what happens? She laughs. Ah, he takes, before she laughs, he takes Hagar, right? He goes to Egypt, and she shows up She gives him Hagar, right? She gives him Hagar, but she shouldn't have done either. Okay? And they end up having Ishmael. Okay, now I put Ishmael down here with the line, the, the sinful line, even though Ishmael doesn't receive the curse necessarily, but he does become the father of who? Yeah, the Arabs and, the, and eventually the Muslims. So, but anyways, but I put him down here only because he doesn't follow the covenant line. Okay, and so who does follow the covenant line? Who does Abraham and Sarah eventually have? Isaac. Isaac. Okay, and he goes and finds his wife, not among the Canaanites, but he goes back to Haran to his family, right, and takes who is his wife? Rebecca. Rebecca. Right, and Rebecca has. Two sons, right? Uh-huh. Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, right. Okay. And you remember the story. We're not going to rest in it too long here. Yeah, but you remember when you remember when um, when Jacob was about to take the blessing. Who was the one that really encouraged him to do it? His mother, right? His mother says, "Go and take what is not yours to take." Okay. There was a man that asked a question at the end last time about the um, why does why do the scriptures just clearer about when people sin? Who is that? So okay, this is a classic example. Okay, and my answer for those people that had to leave was that it, because they never tell the sin of their father in the sense that oh my father whatever he committed this terrible sin they'll tell the story and let you come to the conclusion. Okay, and this is a good example of that. They trick their father. Okay, and what happens immediately after they, um, Jacob receives the blessing by trickery? 
What happens? He goes into exile. What's that? He goes into exile. He goes into exile, right? He ends up going to find his wife, right? He says, you better get out of here because your brother's going to kill you. Okay? So what happens to Rebecca? She ends up losing the son that she was trying to save. Okay? And so he is exiled, even though the text doesn't say it in those, in those terms, he is exiled for his sin. <coughs> and his brother, who should have received the blessing, stays in the land. Okay? So he goes, and he meets Laban. You remember the story, right? And he works for seven years for who? Well, he wants Rachel. Right, Rachel. What do you guess? And who else? Leah. Leah, right. I know some of you guys are going, okay, I know this. That's why we're flying through it. He has 12 sons through Rachel and Leah. And through who else? Zilha and Bila, their servants, you remember? They both have servants. It goes back and forth, and they have sons. Jacob has, well, you know, he has his way, so there you have it. Um, they have 12 sons. And what happens? Who's the favorite son? Joseph. Who's the oldest son? Reuben. Reuben. That's how you spell Reuben, is it? It doesn't matter. I'm dyslexic, so I apologize when I misspell things. Reuben is the oldest, and so by nature he would receive what? The blessing and the covenant, right? He doesn't end up receiving it for a number of reasons. But the the brothers become jealous of Joseph, right? And so they sell him into slavery in Egypt. Okay? And Joseph becomes powerful in Egypt. And so what happens? Like I just said a few minutes ago, you always see the result of the sin. The brothers sell them, their brother into slavery. So what happens to them? They end up in Egypt, where they sold their brother. And their descendants become slaves. They receive the curse of their action. Okay, something to remember again about, about the covenant and the curse. God doesn't necessarily curse somebody, but he removes the blessing from them. And when you're not protected from, by God, you get into all sorts of trouble. Okay, It's the same thing with the garden being the tree of life, tree of knowledge. God didn't condemn Adam to hell or say, I will, I will kill you when you eat of the tree of knowledge. No, you will surely die by separating yourself from me. And so the result of their sin is not having the blessing of God and they end up being exiled and in slavery. Does that make sense? Okay. Joseph goes down into Egypt and he becomes powerful. You remember the first place he becomes powerful is in Potiphar's... uh, um, He goes in as a servant to Potiphar. Do you remember that? In uh, chapter 46. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm not going to say too much about it except... Chapter? Chapter 46 of Genesis. I'm not, sorry, not 40, 37. 37. I think it's 37. He becomes very powerful in Potiphar's, in Potiphar's house. And, um, yeah, verse 38, or chapter 38 and 39. And what happens? 
Potiphar's wife does what to him? Do you guys remember? We got to get through this text so you guys know it. She tries to seduce him, right? She tries to seduce him, right? And she and she and he flees from her. And what does she do? She takes his cloak and strips it off of him as he's running away, and he flees. Okay. Now, I'm just bringing this point up because in our Bible study that we did on how to study the Bible and kind of basic principles, one of them, one of the principles we talked about is the importance of the liturgy. That the liturgy is a great help in interpreting the scriptures. And as I've said so far, all of salvation history is this constant repetition. That's why if you memorize Genesis 1 through 3, you pretty much know salvation history. Because it's the same story over and over and over and over and over again until Jesus grabs hold of that over and over and over again and corrects it. Okay? So that story keeps going. And the liturgy can help us to interpret that story properly. I want to read you a text. I'm Byzantine, by the way. Byzantine Catholic, Melkite. And a text that we read during Holy Week. It's very beautiful and great. gives great insight into the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. I'll read it to you. You can see the importance of listening in the liturgy for interpretation of Scripture. The serpent found a second Eve in the Egyptian woman, Potiphar's wife, and plotted the fall of Joseph to the words of flattery. You remember the serpent flattering Eve in the beginning, right? The serpent found a second Eve in the Egyptian woman and plotted the fall of Joseph, Joseph through the words of flattery. But leaving behind his garment, Joseph fled from sin. He was naked and unashamed, like Adam before the fall. Through his prayer, Christ have mercy on us. Is that beautiful? So he, in, in the person of Joseph, a righteous man, you get a kind of a beginning of the reversal of what Adam did. Remember, Adam was naked and he was ashamed. But Joseph leaves behind his garment and is unashamed because he's righteous. He stands before God. Okay? Eventually, Israel and all his, and his sons, well, Jacob becomes Israel through the, um, the blessing of God and the change of his name. And in chapter 49, we end up in Egypt with Jacob. So turn there. It's an important chapter of Genesis. We're almost out of Genesis. Look at this. Here we go. Some of you guys might think I'm psycho, but I usually end up only getting through like chapter one of Genesis after two Bible studies. So we're really going for this is great. So Jacob's about to die in chapter 49. And Sheila, why don't you go ahead and read that for us? Verse 1, and I'll tell you when to stop. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in days to come. Assemble and hear, O sons of Jacob, and hearken to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in pride and preeminent in power. Okay, stop. You're expecting to now say, I give you my covenant blessing. But unfortunately, we hadn't have time to go over it. Reuben had gone and had relations with who do you think? His mother's, his father's, his father's concubine. Okay, again, trying to usurp the throne and stupidly because he would have received the covenant. Okay, and so what does it say next? Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. 
You went up to my couch. Okay, and so on. And he goes to all the sons now to give blessing, curse, to give kind of their future. And these are all, in a sense, the blessing. Even the curses are, this is the father's blessing of his children. This is what they will receive as their inheritance. And we go through those to verse 9, and we find, finally, the one who will receive the covenant blessing. Go ahead, verse 9. Judah is a lion's wealth from the prey my son have gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Okay, and, and he goes on. Who is that going to be? Right, That scepter, that sign of power, will not go from Judah until it come, passes down to him to whom it belongs. Right, The lion of the house of Judah, Jesus Christ. Okay. From this point in the story onward, we will follow the line of Judah. Because it is through Judah that this covenant that we've been watching... Where's my orange? It's in my pocket. Um, it's through Judah that all of the kings of Israel will come. Okay? And eventually, you know who? Okay? So Judah will become very important for us through the rest of the story. Israel dies, okay, at the end of Genesis. In verse 22, um, in, in uh, chapter 50, verse 22, so Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's. Ephraim's children in the third generation, and the children also of Midhir, the son of Manasseh, were born upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brother, I am about to die, but God will visit and bring you up out of this land, the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath of the sons of Israel, saying, God will visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Okay. When we read that text, you can, you can imagine what must have been going through Joseph at that time, knowing the story of God, knowing that God would not fail them and that he would bring them back to the land of promise, no matter what. So oftentimes we read those, those texts and those verses and those stories and they're just dry to us because we're not understanding the importance of returning to paradise and returning to that relationship with God and really realizing the battle that lies before him. This is in some sense a prediction of the ultimate battle that will come when they leave this land and when they receive the land of promise. Okay, Constantly keeping that in mind, that battle that was predicted in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Okay, any questions? Yeah, so, yes. Yes. Um, how does the blessing, you said we're going to be following the line of Judah. Mm -hmm. um, what should we take from the blessing that he gives to Joseph? Um, you want to look at it? Go ahead. You read that verse 22 for us. Chapter 49, verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers fiercely attack him, shot at him, and harassed him sorely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by God Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, 
The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of the eternal mountains. Okay, and so on. So he receives a great blessing. But notice he does not receive that blessing that Judah got, which is this blessing of the scepter, the ruling, the blessing of the, he would be head of the family. Okay? So there's nothing wrong with multiple blessings being given. In fact, it's a good thing, right? In fact, uh, Japheth receives a blessing, right? Um, uh, back in chapter 9 of Genesis. Not quite that strong, but... It's just, it's one of, okay, it's a covenant blessing that he will remain strong through his sons, okay? Um, any other questions? We're on to Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt from Jacob, each with his house, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, Asher, all the offspring of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph had already been in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation, but the descendants of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Okay? So again, that you see underneath the text, if we're reading carefully, that instruction of God to be fruitful, multiply, and ultimately the blessing coming about even in the land of sin and slavery. Um, from here, you pretty much know the story. Who's called? Moses. Moses. Okay. And for the next 12 chapters, you get that story of Moses. So turn to chapter 12, verse 1. I've gotten a couple phone calls during the week of what should I read? <laughs> okay, because we're going so fast. I don't have an answer for you except this. If you find one particular area of interest to you that we're talking about, like, wow, that's cool, go back and read that section. At least make that part of it your own. Okay, and from there you can go on to other things. So chapter 12, verse 1. Can you read it first? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month they shall take every man a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then a man and his neighbor next to his house shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. What feast is this that he's describing? Passover. Passover. Okay? Now, Passover for the Jews is extremely important, and it will give us the, the time frame. We're going to kind of go away from the genealogy for a little bit here, and we're going to tie into the time frame of the thing taking place. Because it's from this point on that the text becomes very difficult. Most people can skip over the genealogies pretty easy. But they hit the book of Leviticus like, I don't know, you know like a freight train hitting a, I don't know, whatever. And, and you don't know what to do with it. It's way too big to skip over. Okay? And what comes after Leviticus? Numbers. What do you do with numbers? What, do you come, what comes after numbers? What do you do with Deuteronomy? Okay? And whoop, we put the book away. Okay? And not only that, most of the time we get into Exodus and we get to those laws that are given about how to do this and how to build a thing and 24 cubits and 65 this and, and we close the book. So we normally don't even make it to Leviticus, but those strong-hearted people that do hit Leviticus and usually die. So our goal is not to die in Leviticus. Okay? We don't want to be slaughtered on the altar or anything like that. So, chapter 12, verse 1. What's our time frame? It will be what for you? 
first month. Oh, yeah, the first year. The first month. It's a new year for them, and everything will be counted from this point. Okay. They leave Egypt. Now, just as a side note, all of the um, uh, um, plagues, the ten plagues that are given, okay, are plagues traditionally understood to be um, condemnations of Egyptian gods. That every single plague that happens is a plague against one of the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians were pantheists. They worshipped everything. Well, almost everything. They didn't worship the pig. Okay? You don't worship pigs, right? And so what is... when? Well, this goes way off on a tangent, but what does God allow them to eat and not allow them to eat? In Egypt, they ate pig all the time. Okay? So when they're out in the desert, what does God say when he gives them the laws? Don't eat what? Don't eat pig. Don't eat pork. Okay? And he makes them eat the things that were forbidden in Egypt to eat because those were the gods of the Egyptians. So he makes them eat the gods of the Egyptians. Okay? To show that they're not gods. Okay? Furthermore, all the plagues are the same way. They're plagues against the Egyptians' god. The, the, the god, oh, it's funny, but happy or happy, is the, is the frog. And they, the Egyptians worshipped the frogs. But what happened? The plague with the frogs, you remember? What happened? They started multiplying all over. So they just covered the land. I mean, literally covered the land. So to walk anywhere, what would you have to do? Yeah, you got to walk and step on the, on the frogs. you got to step, literally step upon and kill and smash this god that the Egyptians worshipped. Not only that, finally when, when God heard the cry of the Egyptians, they stopped them from multiplying. What happened to them? Do you remember? They died. And they started to rot in the streets and stink. Okay? Yeah, so all those all those plagues are all against those Egyptians' gods, which are being condemned in the text. Okay? That's a side note. They end up leaving Egypt. Okay? And they find their way to Mount Sinai. And a huge event happens for us at Mount Sinai that you gotta know. Not only is there a covenant, but something terrible takes place. Turn to chapter 19, verse 1. Chapter 19, verse 1. Well, so it's not chapter 19. They end up, in, I'm sorry, chapter 19, verse 1. Um, Sheila, can you read that first sentence? On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone forth out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Okay, the third new, new moon. Basically, how long? Three months. Yeah. So now we're at year one, month three. It takes them how long to get from Egypt to Sinai? Three months. Okay, now we've got a pretty good time frame to work off of. This whole story in those intervening chapters takes place in a three-month period. Okay? It'll become apparent why the, why the time is so important. Okay, as soon as we hit numbers. In chapter 32, we get the story of... What story? Golden the golden calf. Yes, finally the golden calf, the long-awaited. Okay? 
And you know the story of what happens. Okay, so they build the golden calf. Turn to verse uh, 21. It's a little highlight, a little fun story for us. The greatest magic trick in all of history. Verse 21. Yeah, chapter 32, verse 21. Moses comes down from Sinai and he sees what happened. And go ahead. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what is to come of him. And I said to them, Let anyone who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and there came out this calf. <laughs> what a surprise! <laughs> he had nothing to do with it at all. It was a magic. There it is. Okay. So what happens? Okay. The next couple of verses are very important. Go ahead. Let's read. Let's keep reading there for. I'll tell you when to stop. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, "Who is who is on the Lord's side? Come to me." And all the sons of, of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword on his side, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. Okay. Why did the Levi, Levites um, join Moses? Why were the Levite? Why were the Levites the one that came to his side to do the will of God? There was tribe. What's that? There was tribe. The way he's tribal. How do you know that? There's a relationship there between Aaron and Levites. No, not between Aaron. Turn to, back to chapter two, verse one. Between Aaron. Sorry. Chapter two, verse one. It's not because of Aaron. Go ahead, Norma, read, read verse 1 for us. No. Yeah, read verse 1 for us. Come on. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took the wife to wife, a daughter of Levi. Okay, and keep going. Uh, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a, a goodly child, she hid him three months. Okay, she hid him for three months and eventually puts him in a basket and floats him down a river. Who was that? Moses. Moses is a Levite. He's a son of Levi. And so when he says, who is with me, his brothers all come to his side. Okay? It's at this point in the story 
that the book of Leviticus fits in. Okay, and we're going to look at a few other texts in the book of Numbers also. The Levites, well, actually, let's, we've got to go back to that. Let's go back to chapter, um, where were we in, in Exodus? 32. Go back to verse 32. Chapter 32, sorry, I said um, verse 28 and the sons of Levi did according to the word, the word of Moses and there fell the people that day about 3,000 men and Moses said today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord the service of the Lord is the liturgy of the Lord today you have ordained yourselves for the liturgy of the Lord for the worship of the Lord Okay? It was this act of the, of the men of the tribe of Levi that caused them to become the priests among Israel. Before that, who were the priests? Yeah, the eldest, the eldest of every family was the priest. Remember about Kizedek was a priest king. Okay? The book of Numbers, we'll see, we'll, we'll go through that, we'll see the tribes give up their priestly abilities. Okay, and the Levites be ordained for the priesthood. It's at this point that the book of Levi should be read, if it's to be read at all. Do you do you enjoy reading the um, the sacramentary is the sacramentary of the priest? <clears throat> probably not. You probably have never picked it up. I mean, the Roman sacramentary in the church, probably not. Okay, if you picked up the old Missale Romanum in the beginning, this big text, all in Latin about. Every single thing the priest is supposed to do. That's the book of Leviticus. If you enjoy reading that part of the Missal, God bless you. Most people don't. Okay? It is the instructions of the priest for the sacrificial offerings. And the reason it's so intricate is because of this sin that the people had committed with the golden calf. They blew, they blew it, or they dropped the ball on the worship of God. And so God steps in and says, fine. You want to be treated like children, I'll treat you like children. And he lays out a whole list of laws for them to follow. Okay, down to the smallest detail. So that there's no chance that they could blow it unless they did it intentionally. Okay, that's where the book of Leviticus fits in. So when you get to the, story, you get to the end of Exodus... And you hit the book of Leviticus like a freight train in a brick wall or whatever. Not a freight train, a car, I guess, because the car is destroyed. Don't get destroyed. Because it doesn't follow like the New York Times, like the next chapter in a book. It's not designed like that. Okay? It's designed to fit right in here in the text, and you can read it like that if you want, right at that point. Why are they um, instructed to kill others? Is that what they do? All the other men, I won't go into it in detail unless we do a whole study of Exodus, which we will someday. All of the other men that are killed are men that had partaken in the worship of the golden calf. The, gold, the calf was a god of Egypt. Okay, I have the name, it's the god Apis. It was the god of the calf. And the worship, it was, it was a cult dedicated to the firstborn. Dedicated to the firstborn who were just all killed. What's that? Who were just all exactly. But the cult was done. Okay, the liturgy of Apis, if you will, was done. So not such a nice manner. Okay, it was a big uh, orgy. Okay, so sorry the kids are there. That's how they worshipped the god Apis. Okay, 
And so when, it, when you're reading the text carefully, it says, after the, building the golden calf, it says, the sons of Israel came out to play. Okay? <laughs> to play in the biblical sense. Okay? <laughs> and so... They the Levites then turned. What's that? They knew what they were doing. Is that? <laughs> well, they were not knew what they were doing. They were doing it for a reason, okay? Because what was going on, they wanted to partake, partake in. And you know, you guys have all seen the movie Ten Commandments, haven't you? Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> that's a joke. But I mean, it has that kind of connotation in there. Um, let me just look so I don't skip things. We're getting towards the end of this thing of our time together. Turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 3, verse 1. Numbers is similar to the book of Leviticus in the sense that you can't read it straight through unless you're extremely careful. The book of Numbers continues our time frame for us, but it does a really bad thing. It's really bad that Moses wrote it this way. Okay? Why do I say that? You remember chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis. Chapter 1 tells the story of creation. What does chapter 2 tell? Another story of creation. Not because they're two different stories, but they're the story told twice from two different perspectives. Okay? The book of Numbers does something we don't like in modern day society, and that is it goes back without telling you to an earlier time, halfway through a story. All of a sudden, it'll just start telling a different time period. Okay? It'll give you the little note of when the time period is, but most people miss it. And so it keeps switching back forward, back and forth in its storyline, and you, it's hard to follow. So you're reading it along, and it becomes very more and more difficult because you think, well, gee whiz, that happened way back then, didn't it? And then you get all confused in the time frame. Does that make sense? Okay. So what I'm going to do, there was somebody in here that said the book of Leviticus Numbers was frustrating to them last time. I don't know if he's here. But anyways, what I want to do is just show you a little bit of how that takes place. Chapter 3, verse 1. Sheila, can you read that for us? These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu. Okay, I'm like, yeah, okay. So, it goes back to chapter 3, verse 1. Let me find myself in my notes here. Yeah, chapter 3, verse 1. Okay, he speaks from Mount Sinai. Skip to verse 11. 11 and 12. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn that opens a womb among the people of Israel. Okay, so there's our text, right? Telling us about what happened to the Levites. Okay? So Numbers chapter 3, verse the verse 1 and verse 11 fits in right with the golden calf incident. Okay? Right when the Levites are chosen, he says, You have ordained yourselves this day for God. It's right there that Numbers chapter 3, verse 1 fits in. Okay? Um, go back to Exodus with me to chapter 40 of Exodus. I know this gets a little dry, but we got to do it. Sorry. Exodus 40. Gotcha. Chapter 40, verse 1. We shall Numbers. Exodus chapter 40, verse 1. Thank you. 
Okay, she, she, go ahead. The Lord said to Moses, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Okay, the first day of the first month of what? We just followed Exodus for, guess how long? Well, we followed for three months. They got to Sinai, and then from they had the whole thing on Sinai. They had the golden calf incident. They had Moses going up and interceding again. All the rest of the book of Exodus, all the way to the last chapter of Exodus, and suddenly we get the first day of the first month of what? Well, I should have done first year here of the second year. The first day of the first month of the second year. So all their time, all the way up to the building of the tabernacle, the whole book of Exodus is one year exactly. And they build the tabernacle. Turn with me back to Numbers. What's that? The significance is that, that Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy destroy people's ability to read the Bible as one book. Okay? And what we need to do is be able to splice it together in such a way that we realize where we're going in the storyline so that we can keep reading the Bible as one story. And it becomes extremely, I know this gets really hard and kind of dry. I apologize for that. But it's right here where we all fall apart. So it's right here we got to put on the brakes okay, and, and get nice and comfortable for the first time and start to understand what's going on in the story. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. So, yeah. so Leviticus and Numbers are both fitting in the context of this one year, 12 months. Well, Numbers is going to do, uh, Levit Leviticus and Exodus d does. Okay, Exodus fits in right, it's just a law given, so it just fits in that, like, almost whenever Moses wrote it, right during that golden calf incident. Okay. Numbers is going to flip back and forth in this time frame at the end of that year. Okay, so we're going to see. Okay, so Numbers is going to be some events during that year and some after. Exactly. So this is the 40 years wandering? Yes. Well, no, we're going to get to that. Okay. We're going to get to that. Numbers is going to cover for us our time from the, um, the leaving of Sinai okay, to the coming to the Holy Land and dealing with that, the reason for the 40 years wandering. Okay. okay. So look at chapter 1, verse 1. She Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by families, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head. Okay. Give us their date again. That he gave us? The date? Yeah. What the first day of the second month and the second year. Okay, you see we're another month after we're here. Moses has set up the tabernacle, and now God says, take a census. Before you leave Sinai, I want to know who's in the camp. Okay? And so Numbers, again, becomes very dry like, like Leviticus, because all of a sudden we get so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. But the difference between the genealogies and this is that we don't have to pay attention to this, because we're not going to know most of those names anyways. It's just a, here's who's in the camp, okay? And in amidst that, who, here's who's in the camp, is a little story that keeps going, okay? And we're going to look at that. I know we're out of time. Can you guys give me three minutes? Okay. Um, 
Turn to chapter 10, Numbers chapter 10. So look, you're in chapter 1 of Numbers. We're just going to follow the story a little bit all the way to chapter 10, verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 11. Go ahead, Sheila. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle of the testimony. Okay, give me that date again. In the second year, second month, on the 20th day. Okay, the 20th day. So now we're 20 days after God tells him to take the census. Why? It took him about 20 days to take the census. There's another reason we don't have to get into it. But he takes the census, and 20 days later, what happens? Finish our sentence first. The cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time the command of the Lord by Moses. The standard of the camp of the men of Judah set out first by their companies. Okay. Now, this is the last thing I'm going to say about all this nonsense about numbers and the going back and forth. Now look, we just went from chapter 1 of Numbers, okay? And in chapter 1 of Numbers, where were we? We were here taking the census, right? We went ahead, Numbers chapter 1, we went ahead to 20 days later at Numbers chapter 10. Now you're going to ask me what happens in 10 chapters, okay? Chapter 10. I'll tell you what happens. And this is where Numbers gets confusing. For anyone who's reading Numbers, this is the last thing we're going to deal with and we're going to get out of Numbers or out of this problem. Is that in the middle here, in chapter 7, the text goes like this. And it comes all the way back here. Okay? And picks up, uh, I don't know if it's chapter 3 or chapter 7, but it's right in there. It picks up with the golden calf incident, okay? And tells this story of Exodus all again, all the way, all the way, all the way to there. So it does this big loop-de-loop in numbers. It goes back and tells the story again. And you guys are going, oh my God, this is way too confusing. Don't worry about it. All I'm saying is that you go home and you want to try to read through this stuff, you're going to get really confused unless you're paying attention to the time frame. Okay? And the good news is, at chapter 10 of Numbers, we pick up the tent and we start moving for the Holy Land. Okay? Let me see if there's one more thing I have to say to you before we... Did we look at chapter uh, 10, verse 11? We did. Yeah. We did. Turn to Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. And it's the last thing we're going to look at. Do you see how we just worked our way a little bit through Numbers in the first few chapters? Let's look at chapter 13 to see where we're going. The Lord said to Moses, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I give to the people of Israel. You remember that story. And they're going to go out and they're going to spy out the land. So look, all the way to Numbers chapter 13, dealing with going back and forth between the Exodus story. Okay, Finally, we get from Sinai. We pick up in chapter 10 verse 11 at Sinai. They pick the tent up. They pack it up. And in three, cha- three chapters, they walk across the desert from Sinai. It doesn't take them very long. And they get to the edge of the Holy Land. Okay? Okay. Now, I apologize, because that was all really dry and really hard and difficult to follow. But what's exciting is that what we have before us now is a great battle. And it's the battle that was predicted way, 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 way back here. 
Okay? And it's the battle of taking the Holy Land that Abraham was given. And it will be bloody, and it will be nasty, and there will be people that die. And the reason there will be people that die is because the Canaanites should never have been dwelling in that land. They should never have been ruling in that land. They should have submitted themselves to the will of God. They should have been serving Shem and all of his descendants. So now Joshua will lead the rightful heirs of that land back in and take it. And when a man raises a sword against them, they will kill him. Just as surely if I walked into my own house and a man was standing in my living room with a sword in his hand, I would do everything in my power to kill him on the spot. That is my house, it is the dwelling of my family, and he has no right to be there. Now, if he's standing there begging for food, asking for help, wanting to know about the true God, fine. He shouldn't be sitting in my living room, he should be at my front door, but... Okay. If he's Jehovah's Witness, knock on my door, fine, I'll talk to him. Okay? You understand? All right. That was a long thing. Let's take, uh, again, a little 30-second break. You can, uh, the people that need to leave, which I'm guessing is a lot of you guys, you can leave or get some wine. And I'll take questions for five minutes like I did last time. It's only five minutes, and then we'll cut it off. Okay? Woo. Next week, Tuesday. Sorry for all that. Just a lot of craziness.
little stage. We've got a little announcement for the people that are able to do the March for Life. We have room in the youth bus leaving here at 9.30 in the morning for the March for Life on Monday. So if you want to come, let me know. I have a spot for you. Okay. Out you go. Anybody else? Yes. All right. So actually, Moses just appeared. I mean, as a baby. But what's the line? Is it from the students' line? The no, remember I was still hanging out. What's the answer to that? He's from the tribe of Levi. Oh, Levi, I'm sorry. See, we had to go so fast, but Levi is one of the 12 sons of, of Jacob, of Israel. Okay, and so we're going to follow those 12 sons now as they come into the Holy Land out of Egypt and conquer it and divide it according to the tribes. Okay, and Levi is one of those sons. And Moses is a descendant of Levi. And so when he's standing there, he says, who's going to be with me? His brothers go, all right, yeah, we're with you. You know, I mean, not only that, he probably... You know, have you seen the movie Ten Commandments with the glowing Moses? You know, he probably looks. I don't know. Anyways, I would have joined in my hope. You know, but then the people of Judah, like the line that will follow, like do they go with him, or they stayed in camp? They stayed in, where were they? They were all at Sinai, right? The whole of Israel and his 12 sons are encamped at Sinai, okay? you got to go back and read the story if you haven't read it, because they're all camped at Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain, okay? And he comes back down, and in that time while he was gone, okay, he was probably in ecstasy before God for who knows how long, he comes down, and they've built the calf and done this whole thing, and uh, he hears them doing their, you know, having their revelry in the camp, and he comes down, and, and, and the story goes. So, um, the line of Judah there, that's a good question. What happened to the line of Judah? Judah's family receives a blessing, but it doesn't mean that some of the line of Judah won't do what they shouldn't do, okay? And so, yes... They apparently were involved in this thing. Okay, it doesn't mean that everyone was involved, but the Levites in particular joined Moses. Okay, and then they went and he, they slew all the men that had been involved. You, didn't you have a question on this point? No, who had a question about this? About the okay, ask he, he didn't slew, slew everybody then. They just slew the. All right, I mean, who was left? Yeah, there's a there's a um, a man named Hamilton. It's his last name. I forget his first name. Wrote a commentary on the Pentateuch. It's, it's very good, and um, he makes a good point. One of the laws, I believe, it's in Leviticus, that. Um, it, this goes pretty far afield. That's what question and answer for. We have a little more fun. So, um, if a woman is um, accused or believed to have engaged in um, in uh, what's it called adultery, okay? Do you guys know the law of what's supposed to happen? Yeah, but how do they find out she is the one that's involved? Not only that. The priest goes into the Holy of Holies in the temple and cleans up some of the dust okay, from the floor. And they take some water from Silo, which was a sacred, one of the sacred um, uh, wells, and mixes it together and has her, has her drink it. Okay? And if she drinks it and becomes sick, it says her body will split open and all that stuff will terrible will happen. It means she was guilty. Okay? And if not, then she's proved to be, you know, whatever. So his theory, and I think it's a decent one, is that what happened um, was, I haven't read this text in a while, but they have to go and they have to drink out of the river. Okay? And he, he melts down the calf and mixes it with water and makes him drink it. Pours it in the river and they have to go drink the water of the river. Okay. So they have to drink the dust of the golden calf. 
Okay. Now, how is it possible? This is his theory, and I think it's a good one. It's question and answer, so I'm not saying okay. How is it possible that the Levites would take up swords against all of the rest of the 12 tribes of Israel, kill them? Of, of the how ones that all these men. The only possible way is that somehow, and how would they know who was involved either? But unless somehow that they had been shown to be the ones. And his point is, look, he made them drink of this water where he ground the golden dust of the into it, and they probably became sick from it, the ones who had actually committed the sin, as a sign of who, and so they're laying there incapacitated, okay? And they walked around to anyone who's throwing up or whatever and just put them down, okay? That's his theory. I think it's a decent one, whatever. Um, Alright, uh, can I ask a question to something we talked about last week? Sure. Alright. Um, but I am going to keep it to five minutes, so go. Yeah, back in Genesis 4, um, when um, Cain's getting the boot, it says, um, if anyone kills Cain, Cain should be avenged sevenfold, so the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone should kill him at sight. My question is, who's anyone? As, as far as we know from the story so far, we only have Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Well, not Abel anymore. Yeah, and that gets to another question about what women are around. Somebody asked, I don't know if he's still here, what women are around that, uh, how did they ever propagate? Because they only had two sons, so where are the women? The story is not complete. Okay, the genealogies are not complete as to the children of all of these men. Okay, it's just giving the firstborn and the basic storyline. So it, Adam and Eve lived a long time after that. Okay, so the indication is that they would have had other sons and daughters. Okay, and so the, and not only that, it, they lived for Cain lived for a long, long, long time, and so there would have been lots of people around, relatives of his. Okay, roaming around. So and does that make sense? There's mice still Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. In fact, it says. In fact, the tradition among the Jews is that Lamech, the seventh generation, murdered Cain. Okay, that's the, that's the Jews' belief. Yeah. Is there a, a reason why uh, God didn't come down harder on Aaron because he was in charge of the Israelites when they made the golden calf? But uh, it turned then after the <clears throat> after that he's in the high priestess. The high priest. Yeah, the high priest. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> so, so why does God leave him to be the high priest over the Levites? It's, I, would, I would guess, I would suggest a guess that he probably joined Moses' side. Okay, so he repented of his sin. Moses gave everybody a chance to repent. said, you know, who's with me? Who's with me? Right? And so it's possible that he repented at that time. Probably the case. Because you're right. He's forgiven of his sin, and he goes on to, to lead Israel in that way. But... Previously, the priests were uh, uh, the old people, right? Why? We're the firstborn. Why now the Levites became priests? Because, you remember, we looked at it, that the Levites joined Moses, and it says, This day you were ordained for the service of the Lord. Okay? Because they joined, because the, the all the other firstborn, right, involved in the cult of the firstborn, had committed the sin, and they didn't repent of it. Okay? Any other questions? Does that have any repercussions on the Jewish uh, temple today? What do you mean? Well, how do they uh, determine who is the... Uh, the Levitical priesthood? Yeah. There's, I, mean, I don't know, I, there's probably somebody that knows more about this than I do in the room, but I, to my understanding, they're actually still tracing the lines, and they think they know who the Levitical priests are and things like that. I find the DNA yeah. of it. 
Yeah, maybe. Antiquity. They're trying to figure out all that stuff. Figure out whether mm -hmm. that's yeah. anybody or not. It they follow genealogy so much that I just wondered if they... Can they figure it out? You know what? For, for Christians, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Right. Okay, and the reason is because the firstborn priesthood was restored with Jesus Christ. Okay? He is the priest, and now the entire priesthood is a matter of incorporation into Christ. Okay? So... But also, at the time of Christ, there was no Levitical priesthood, right? No, there was. Yeah. The, I mean, well, they didn't, have, they didn't have the proper temple, right? And they didn't have the... Well, I mean, they were, well, the temple was built, but they didn't... What was missing from the temple? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Right, so there was something that was lacking, but even then, the Levitical priesthood was there. So, like, the Pharisees, they would have been Levites? Uh, I do believe yes. Huh. Yeah. Huh. But for Christians, it doesn't matter. What I'm saying is that with for that Jesus Christ um, being our high priest, okay, restores the priesthood to the firstborn in Himself. Okay, reverses what happened to the golden calf. Okay, He becomes the priest, and now all the priests that we see walking around are a matter of an incorporation in the body of Christ, reflecting Jesus Christ in that manner as priest. Or genealogy doesn't matter. Genealogy doesn't matter, right? Because there's one genealogy now. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He's it. Yeah. That's what Saint Paul says, anyways. In the Magnificat, you know, at the end, says the promise to our fathers, Abraham. Can you just say what that promise is exactly? Yeah, well, well, who else? What's the promise? What's the promise given to Abraham? Yeah, he's got a number of promises, but the most important, he will be the father of many nations, and the father of what? He will be given the land. Many nations. Okay. Is that in Mary's prayer? Uh, I gotta go back and read it. Alright, the last little chunk of my is come and help of his servant Israel, for his remember his promise of mercy, the promise he made to yes. his father's name forever. Yes, because from his line all the nations would be blessed. Okay? And so now finally with Jesus Christ, now all nations will be blessed. The the blessing will go out beyond Israel and go out to the entire world. Okay? And through Mary. Okay? That makes sense? Kind of? Okay. No? We're good to go? Alright. Well, let's alright, one question and one What did you ask me afterwards? Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Alright, next Tuesday we'll see. I promise it won't be so dry and drudgery next time. We'll get to more meaty fun stuff. Like giants and things.